You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Micah chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me tell you about Micah so we, we've been going through a series in the book of Micah. Micah is a prophet that lived in the middle of the 8th century B.C. The nation of Israel is divided. There's a north and a south, and the north is, um, if it hasn't already, it's about to be destroyed by a country called Assyria. They're going to come in. They're going to wipe uh, the northern part of the, uh, of the kingdom uh, to, to the ground. They're going to uh, take the people into captivity and export them out of their land. They're going to get lost in the nations around them. And Micah, he lives in the south, uh, the part of the divided kingdom that's known as Judah. Jerusalem is the capital. And he's writing to the leaders there to say, listen, we know the sins of Assyria, we, I mean, uh, of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. We know their idolatry. We know the injustice that they've perpetrated upon the people they were supposed to care for. But Micah turns and says, but listen, you're just as guilty. And in some ways, you're more guilty because Jerusalem's the capital. We still have a king who's in the line of David sitting on the throne. And we are acting as a people and a nation and as leaders more wicked than the pagan nations around us. And so what Micah does, we saw last week, Micah chapter 3, he levels this indictment against them and announces the judgment that is coming because of the sin, because of the rebellion, because of the wickedness. In chapter 4, he's actually going to hit the second part of his sermon. And there's a lot of commentators that think, well, Micah couldn't have written chapter 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 3 is, is, is doom, it's, it, it's gloom, it's, it's judgment, and it ends at the end of chapter 3 with, with Jerusalem being leveled to the ground. What was a thriving city will become ground that you could plant a garden in. It will be so destroyed. But yet in chapter 4, he's going to give us this great hope. In many ways... What Micah is doing is saying to his people, it is darkest before the dawn. Now, I wondered about that phrase this week, so I looked it up. I did a little research, um, kind of like we all do research. So I asked the Google uh, uh, about where it came from. And the best I could tell, and I was surprised to know this, it came from the 16th, 17th century, an Englishman named Thomas Fuller. He was a theologian and a historian, and he'd studied um, Old Testament history his whole life, and he finally got to go to Israel in the latter part of his life. And while he's in Israel, he writes this travelogue um, of his time in Israel. And essentially what he would do is he would go to a spot in Israel, he would open up the scriptures, he would read from the scriptures the events that took place in this spot, and then he would write kind of what it was like to stand there. I mean, and if you've been to Israel, you, you've gotten to go to Jerusalem, you, you know that feeling. And it's in his travelogue in Israel 
that he coins the phrase that is always darkest just before the day dawns. And he's standing at the place. Um, you, it's 1 Samuel chapter 30. David is about to be stoned by the people he's been leading. Uh, they've been with him. They've been out. They come to their home. They find their home has been ransacked. The women and children have been kidnapped. And David is in the really dark moment, and his men turn against him, and they, they, they try to stone David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, it says that David sought shelter in the rock of his God. And he writes this, and he coins the phrase in 1650. He said, David must have felt like it was, it was the darkest moment of his life. And yet he didn't know that the dawn, the sun was about to rise. It's great. I mean, it's a great order. You, if, you, if that doesn't connect with you, another very famous telling of that phrase, um, Harvey Dent. I love it. If you laughed, you're my kind of person. The um, rising star in Gotham in the movie The Dark Knight, theological classic, and uh, he stands at the podium and he announces to the people who are all afraid because of the, of the growing fear in the city. And he says, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And then he looks at him, very sincere song, it's great acting. I promise you, the dawn is coming. In many ways, that's what Mike is doing. He's saying, I promise you, the dawn is coming. And so he's going to tell us about this. To give us a little bit of history, though, so we've got to understand a little bit of history so that when we get into Micah 4, we read it, we go, oh, okay, I see what's happening. I'm going to read three passages real quickly. Um, I could read a bunch of passages, but this gives you a flavor of the passages, and then we'll, it'll help us understand. The first passage I'm going to read is from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is writing to the children of the people that came out of slavery in Egypt. Those people don't get to go into the promised land because they didn't trust God, but their children are going to go, and Moses is writing to them. In the, few, in the chapters before this, he talks to them and says, hey, look, when you go into this promised land, you're going to be, you're, you're the beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant, this eternal covenant with God, and you're going to go in under a Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant, and says, if you, if you follow the Lord, you keep His commandments, Things will go well with you. You're going to be incredibly blessed. If, however, you go into the land and you don't follow the Lord and you get sucked into idolatry and you begin to pick up the habits of the nations that lived there before you, if you, if you, don't, do, if you don't do this the way that God's going to prescribe so that you're his people and all the nations will come to him, then there'll be curses. And as Moses writes it, you can read chapter 28 and there's like this much blessing and there's like this much curses because Moses knows people. And in chapter 30, he writes this. And when all these things come upon you to the nation that's about to go into the promised land, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. He already knows you're going to go into the promised land and then there's going to be a day you're going to get driven out into the other nations. 
the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples from where the Lord God has scattered you. If you are, if if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then here's the hope, listen. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You're going to go into the land. You're going to fail. There's going to be judgment that comes. You're going to be scattered. But God will not have forgotten you. And he will come and regather you. And not only that, he's going to do something in you to cause you to walk in his ways. This is back in Deuteronomy. I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 61 real quick. Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. You can read Isaiah, and you read Micah, and you go, oh, these guys sound the same. It's because they're writing at the same time. Isaiah has a long extended section of the judgments that are going to come. In fact, if you make it to the end of chapter 59, you'll read Isaiah all the way through 59. It's just bad news after bad news after bad news, and you start to feel really hopeless. You start to feel like, man... Is really dark. And then in chapter 60, he turns the corner and the light dawns and the hope comes. And then in chapter 61, this is what Jesus reads in his very first sermon in the synagogue. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what Jesus does is he puts the scroll down and he says, I've come to do that. I'm your Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he came and he lived this, this perfect life. Every step he took was perfect. And we couldn't stand it. The rest of chapter 61, that we would call that the first advent of Jesus. The rest of chapter 61 is the second advent. He came to save. He will come to rule. That is what Micah is going to be talking about. One last one. I'm just going to read two verses real quick. It's Luke chapter 1. Mary is visited by the angel. She's told this. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he'll be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will Give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And hear the angel speaking to Mary about what is coming for her. 
the angel quotes Micah chapter 4. The dawn is coming. So look with me in Micah chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses. We'll talk about them. We'll make our way to the end. It says this in Micah 4 verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What's so startling about this is that in Micah chapter 3, verse 12, the, the verse just before Micah 4, 1, Micah announced the judgment was going to be that Jerusalem gets leveled to the ground. And here in 4, 1, what we're hearing is, listen, judgment is sure. Judgment is coming, but judgment is not the last word. In fact, what Mike is going to tell them is, listen, here's how judgment works. The pathway of your salvation is going to come through judgment. And then in 4.1, he says, look, in the latter days, it's a period of time, sometime after chapter 3, verse 12, sometime after the devastation that is to come. Then in the latter days, after that, Micah begins describing chapter 4. The latter days, it's the end. There is a sure end. God is staking his name upon this. He goes on to tell us that about these latter days. There is going to be a stability. This, this Zion is going to be established, certain, firm, set right. It will be enduring, but there's also going to be supremacy. He says it's going to be the highest of all the mountains, the pagan religions around. They believed that the gods lived on top of the mountains. And here Mike has taken a dig at all the pagan nations and all the Israelites that were living pagan. This will be the highest of the mountains supreme over all. And it'll be attractive. There's going to be this attraction. All the peoples are going to flow to it. It's actually, in your translation, may say they're going to flow up to it. This sort of anti-gravitational drawing of, of people. They are going to flow uphill to worship God. There's this magnetic pull to the presence of God. Verse 2 tells us many nations shall come. The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be for all the peoples, not just Israel. And that's so great news because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 about us. 
He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise. We had no hope. And we were without God in the world. But in this day, the, the mountain comes. It, it's for all the peoples. Many nations shall come. And then they're saying to themselves as they come, come let us go. We, we want to go there. There's this commitment that they're seeking to be a part of God's people. They're seeking to be identified with him. That This isn't them walking around trying to go, well, you know what? We're, we just really need to find ourselves. We, we really need to get in touch with the inner child in us. And so maybe this is... A, no, they're going there specifically and intentionally because they want him to teach us his ways. We want him to teach. We want the one there to teach us his ways. They have this desire to know God, to walk in his path, a desire to follow after him. Can you, can you even imagine that? That the world clamoring to, to go to the place, this desire, an intentional desire to know something different, to live something different. One writer says it's not as tourists going sightseeing that the nations will come to Jerusalem. They're going to come there as disciples who want to take full advantage of the teaching available. They're eager to learn how the Lord would have them live their lives in accordance with His will. Can you imagine that? It says, out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, His, his law, his, his Word. See, what was previously a heap of ruins... now becomes the word of life. The word endures. It's, it's life-giving. It's life-changing. Micah sees this as the center, the, the ground zero of truth. You know, there is this... You might ask, well, when does this happen? I mean, when does the world look? When, when does the world gaze upon a place and go, you know what, that's the ground center of that's the center. That's the ground zero of truth. And I am doing whatever I can to get there. Micah is seeing the, the latter days, the end of the days. There, there are, however, I think some, some partial fulfillments of this. In John chapter 12, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, it says that the Greeks... They, they came to him while he was there teaching. And it goes on and it tells us um, as they were going up to worship, they hear Jesus, they, they inquire of him, and he said this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I'm a seed. 
And I am going to be struck down. But from me, there's going to be this fruit of seeds that come. There's the initial fulfillment of Jesus standing there and people recognizing, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He might be the one. Then there's this ongoing fulfillment as the seeds begin to come up. It's, it's the story of Acts. It's the story of the church. It's our story, the ongoing fulfillment in the ministry of the church. And then there's the final fulfillment at the end of days. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Notice in verse 3, it's a time of peace, not war. War is going to vanish from the memories and the history of humanity. Can, can you imagine it for a second? War. Gone. There is nothing but peace. It's hard for us to even imagine, isn't it? I mean, in the midst of a country divided. Right? I mean, right? I mean, the internet went crazy this weekend. It, the internet lost its mind this weekend. Tonight, We see the war. Some of you thinking, Dallas Cowboys, Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, you know, I don't even know. I don't even know if I can watch. What do you mean, peace? Our world lives in a constant Tension. Finger on the trigger. War. You don't even have to think nationally, many of you. You don't even have to think worldwide. You know it in your own home. There's no peace. And there hasn't been for a long time. Maybe some of you, I've ventured to say some of you. It's all you've ever known is war and conflict and hurt and pain. And it's hard to even imagine, to even think, what is, what is peace? I mean, we all want it, right? I mean, we all want peace. We have no idea what that even is. Micah's grasping for these words. Listen, this is the impact of the justice of God. God is going to show up. He is going to be present. The righteous judge and the consequence is peace. The impact of the justice of God is peace. Listen, it's not man-made peace. It's not man-achieved utopia. It is divine peace. And notice... This is not some pie-in-the-sky talk from Micah. This, I mean, I, we, we think about, it, okay, well, here's the deal. I mean, this is what the church does. We, we, do, we, we do it carelessly. We don't mean to. So look, just endure the now, and then you'll die and go to heaven, or Jesus will come back and you'll go to heaven, and then we get to live in heaven, and 
we, we get to be fat and live on clouds. And No. This is peace on earth. Notice. Every man under his vine. Under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. It is universal peace individually enjoyed. There is no fear. Can you imagine? So we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. I mean, so we came here. We, we didn't have to cover our tracks when we came here this morning. We didn't have to we didn't come here and gather under the threat of death. But we have brothers and sisters in the world today that that's how they gathered. I imagine the comfort that Micah chapter 4 would be to them. And sit under the vine, under the fig tree. Now, there's no one that would make me afraid. And there is this permanence. Notice. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He's looking forward to a time that you don't just have a couple of good days in a row. Not just looking forward to a time that, you know, you could check off your list. I did 30 quiet times in 30 days. Forever and ever you'll walk. We find out how in Jeremiah and Ezekiel because God's going to make this new covenant with his people. We are the beneficiaries of it now. Where he'll cause his spirit his Spirit will cause us to walk in His ways. His Spirit will come and we'll get a new heart. Take our heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in. And we will walk in it. He'll cause us to walk in His ways. This is not the forever and ever of our best effort. This is the forever and ever of being transformed by God. What do we do with prophecy? So you say, well, Micah, Micah wrote in the 8th century B.C. I don't even know what the 8th century B.C. is. I, I wouldn't even know how to read it. I wouldn't, if it fell in my lap, I wouldn't know what it was. How is that relevant today? Well, we get some help from the New Testament. The, the purpose of prophecy is to purify God's people. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn there is a day coming. In that day, 
Well, he goes on. Look, look, look at verse 6 through 8. We'll get through this. In that day, same time. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. I want you to hear this language. Verses 1 through 5 is about, listen, there's a day in that day when, the, when, the, when it's Seems darkest, but the sun rises. When the dawn comes, when the Messiah is here, there's going to be this day. Israel, God's people, are going to be restored to the prominence and dominion. They were always meant to. In verses 1 through 5, you know what it's about? It's about all of us as the nations going to that. But in verses 6 through 8, there is tender compassion of God regathering those whom he afflicted. God coming to those through whom judgment has been executed. The lame are those God has driven away and afflicted. He's going to regather them. They're his people. He is in covenant with them. Israel will be judged, but it will not ultimately be destroyed. They've been made lame, but he's going to gather them up, and they're going to become strong. You know, this word lame, it only appears three times in the Old Testament. The first time it appears is in Genesis chapter 32. It's this great story. It's the story of Jacob. And Jacob, you know what his name means. It means deceiver, liar, manipulator, sorry rat. I mean, that's, that's Jacob. And yet he's the grandson of Abraham. He's the heir apparent of the promises, the eternal promises of God. And yet Jacob has lived his life lying and stealing and cheating and manipulating and being manipulated. And finally, he's about to have to face the music. His brother that he, that he duped, he's about to come face to face with him. And so he camps out one night at this place called Peniel in Genesis chapter 32. And it's the only time we see Jacob pray. And he bows his head before God and he says, Oh, oh Lord God, I'm sorry. And I... Would you have mercy on me and bring me back into the land? He hasn't been in the land since he cheated his brother. But he can't come back in without facing his brother. And he's scared of him. He is in absolute fear and terror and cries out to God. And you know how God answers Jacob? He shows up in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord, which I take to be Jesus, a 
pre-incarnate Jesus and jumps him in the middle of the night and wrestles with him all night long until the dawn is about to break and he reaches over, he won't let go of him, he won't let go of him, and, and, and just to show how powerful he is, he just touches the socket of his hip and he makes Jacob lame. The answer to Jacob's prayer, he was jumped by Jesus, wrestled with him all night, and left lame. And then what he says to him is, he says, tell me your name. He says, well, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the manipulator. He says, no more are you going to be called Jacob. You're going to be Israel. Which means God strives. You, you wrestled with me, and I will wrestle for you. You're mine. The blessing was the weakening. He walked the rest of his life with a limp, lame, and yet the Scripture calls it a blessing. And his name is changed. Judgment, then salvation. That's the paradigm. And the Lord will reign after he's gathered them. From this time forth and forevermore, they were judged by the law. They will be restored by grace. God does not have any disposable people, by the way. It's not as though Israel is too tough a project for God. In fact, if you have time, we don't have time. If you have to write out Romans chapter 11 in your margin. And see how Paul answers the question, well, is there any benefit of being a Jew? And he says, oh, yes, there is. They've been entrusted with the oracles of God, which means the messianic promises of God. Those promises are theirs. And we're the beneficiaries. Well, in 9 through 13, I want you to see this. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this quickly. The, the tone changes a little bit, but look at what he says. He, he brings us temporarily back. Now, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations have assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know that the thoughts of the Lord, they do not understand His plans, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. 
Micah brings us back to now. Here's what now means. Sometime between now and in that day. Sometime between Micah chapter 3 verse 12 and that day is what he's talking about. And it's a word for those who are in the middle of their nation crumbling. It is a word for those who are in the middle of everything being morally degraded. And it's seeming like there is no hope, but yet there are still some that are seeking God and they need some hope. And this will include the generation. Who is it going to include? It's going to include Jeremiah. It's going to include Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. When they seemingly thought they were abandoned, that they wouldn't lose hope. And he says, what are you going to do? You're going to cry out to counselors? You're going to cry out to the strength of a king to protect you? They have all failed. They have all fallen short. But the seed is still preserved. There still is hope alive. The present may be in utter ruins. But the hope of the future is still very much alive. In fact, the next chapter, Micah is going to tell us where that hope comes from. It's not going to come from one born outside the land. It's going to come from one born inside the land in Bethlehem. Not from wealth and corruption, but one born in poverty and humility and obscurity. The hope is not going to be in kings and counselors as they've known them, not in the way of the world's power and the world's might, not the hope that the world offers, but in a Messiah to come. God made man. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us. Notice in verse 10, Micah announces Babylon, not, not Assyria. You know, if you were to open up a paper on the morning that you heard Micah preach this, you know what the headlines would have been? They would have been Assyria in the north. And I'm sure someone would have heard Micah and said, well, listen, I'm not really in on anything else you said, but Micah, I think you meant Assyria. And he says, no, I mean Babylon. You think Assyria is the worst thing that is ahead of you in your future, but I am here to tell you there is something worse coming. You just think it's dark. It's going to get darker before the dawn. Yet it would be from here that they are redeemed. It would be from Babylon that God is going to orchestrate this movement of, of kings and world leaders to make the way for Israel to return home and to return home with resources to rebuild uh, where, they, where they are, to, to make a home again, to return to making God's name big in the world again. They would not repent in Jerusalem. They would not repent under the threat of Assyria. So you know what God does? He takes them to Babylon to get them back. The pathway of salvation is through judgment. Is, there a, is that a paradigm that still holds today? I'd say you better believe it is. 
There is no salvation without judgment because here's the deal. God is righteous and holy. And He can do no other than to judge the sin of mankind. There is judgment. But you know, in, in the time in which we live, after the first coming of the Messiah, you know how that works? He came. He lived a life. Like I said, every step was the right step. Every thought was the right thought. In all of His humanity, God took on flesh, took on humanity, lived among... He was, better, he was a better man and better woman than we could ever be. He was the man that we were meant to be. He is not less human. He is more. And we couldn't stand the sight of him, and so we, we killed him. We hung him up, and in that hanging up, as God had designed, he became the one through whom judgment would be executed so that the many could be saved. He was, is your judgment. And salvation is believing In verse 11, the nations are assembled against you. Let letter be defiled. In verse 2, the nations were coming. There were many from the nations. They were coming. They were coming because, man, that was the truth. That was the center of truth. That was the gravitational pull to worship God. They wanted to be there. Here there is another group assembling, and they have come to assemble against God. They've come in rebellion. They've come to wage war against God and to slaughter his people. And then in verse 12, I think Micah says it, and I think he's full of glee. I mean, he wouldn't show it because prophets were, were brooding, but he, inside he was having a party. And he says, but they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He has gathered them. They, they think that they've come up on their own will. They think they've come to march against him. They don't know that they're walking perfectly into his plan. They think they've gathered to destroy, but they have been gathered to be destroyed. Oh, God will judge his enemies, his, his people. He will destroy his enemies. And in verse 13, what about all this destruction? What about all the violence? Well, we don't have time to look at it, but let me just say, if that bothers you, put in your margin Psalm 94. Have a pleasant, quiet time with that psalm. See, there's the day that's coming. At the end of the Bible, John, the, the apostle, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, he loved all of them, particular affection for John. John's in his old age, the end of his life. He's stranded on an island called Patmos. 
And he receives a vision. It's the vision of Jesus. And he writes it down. And the vision tells about all these things that Micah's been writing. And he tells about the very end. He tells about, he tells about the time that Micah's been referring to as in that day. And it's Revelation chapter 19. And it's when, it's when the end of the tribulation, the, the end of the worst period of all of history, worse than Assyria, worse than Babylon, worse than anything mankind will ever see. God gathers his people. He clothes them in beauty and perfection. And there is this great banquet. It's called the marriage supper of the land. It is the inaugural event of the millennial reign of Jesus as king on the earth. And then he tells us what happens. Then Jesus takes his white raiment and puts it on. And he mounts his great white horse. And he takes his sword. And on his side is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he goes out to wage war against the enemy that Micah says has come up to wage, enemy, to, to wage war against him. He goes out and just before he begins to slaughter his enemies, he calls the birds and says, all right, all of you birds, you buzzards, you carcass-eating, flying animals, come gather because your feast awaits you. And with a fail swoop, he destroys his enemy and reigns as king. And there is peace forever and ever and ever. Handel got it right in the Messiah. Of course he did. It's Isaiah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I pray that the words of your Holy Scripture that were read and feebly explained would not return void this morning. Father, I pray that you would grant those this morning that find themselves in a very dark moment the light of hope, the hope of dawn, Father, you would stir in us, kindle in us again the longing for the return of your Son. And Father, for any here this morning that still find themselves in, in rebellion against you, hearts that are hard, or, or, or lives that continue to say, you know what, I, I, I can do this. I can, I can, I can make myself presentable. I, I can fix this up. I, I can get my act together. Father, I pray this morning you, you would absolutely... You would absolutely lay heavy upon them their inability to be able to meet your standard and then in that father would you show them the light 
of your son Jesus. And would you grant them the faith to look upon him, his death, the judgment that he took in our place, and the eternal life that he offers by faith, by grace, through faith in your son Jesus. Father, grant them eyes to see that this morning. We ask this, all of this, the only way we can, and that is in the name of your son Jesus, who, whose second coming we long for, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.